Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we have once again assembled a case against something. Um, This, uh, if cursory glance at our um, previous episodes is any indicator, we'll mark our sixth case against, uh, following in the footsteps of cases against genius, management, meritocracy, grit, and, of course, the case against work as a whole idea. So... Today, the defendant is the concept of fandom. First, useful, I think, what do we mean when we say fandom? Like, let's define our term here. What what are we arguing against today? Uh, so fandom, generally, how we're going to be talking about it, is the broad collective consciousness, I guess, of... <laughs> of society yep i'm just digging myself farther in the hole uh of society around like some kind of entertainment thing i think i'm i'm gonna try and, and like distill that into something a little bit more maybe analytical for the lens that that we're doing here but fair fandom i think you could define as the the way in which we the dominant way in which we consume media, be it entertainment media like films, TV, what what have you, be it sports, be it music, if if, if it's like a an entertainment medium, this is the fandom is the way in which it is distributed to people, enjoyed by people. At least in the twenty first century, it is the dominant mode. To offer a third definition here, and I think mine um, is really branching off of Noah's. Um, it's fandom to me, I think, is the idea that it is turning your consumer habits into identity. It is, you know, the step beyond merely buying tickets to a movie or to a sporting event to then label yourself as a fan of this franchise, this product, this team, X, Y, and Z. And from there, it becomes not just something that is other, something that you are consuming, but it becomes a part of yourself. And it is at that point when, you know, questions against that thing are now questions about yourself and people react to those questions in very weird ways generally they don't like them yeah and just as a to branch off of your thing we're just going multiverse all over this uh speaking of fandom fandom requires community to some degree like i can't be i can be a fan of a singular thing but unless there are others who are also fans of that product, whatever it is, it's not 
fandom. It's just being a fan. So, so there is some kind of collective body to fandom that has to be there in order for the consequences of fandom to actually come about. So like I can be a big fan of my dog who is the best and he should have a fandom, but because he is little known, he does not have a fandom. I mean, I I would argue, I would argue that he does have a fandom. It's just possibly (laughs) the most non-toxic fandom in history. Uh, one correction the most non-toxic fandom in history is fandom of punching out want to give a disclaimer at the top of the show that none of what we say here applies to people who identify with the (laughs) listenership of this show you are all good people you need not question your consumer habits and you should not send us any emails thank you all right, yeah, it's punching out Lou, uh, Lou's dog. Every other fandom is somewhere under that on the scale. At any rate, the reason that we end up talking about it is because of the symptoms of this. Emphasis on simp. We have a lot of incidents <laughs> in recent years ramping up that it. You know, the word comes from fanatic. Like, that's what it's originally short for. It was originally applied, I think, to uh, uh, particularly, like, drunk and emotional fans of baseball teams in the late 19th, early 20th century. I think that's where it comes from. I might be misremembering this. But that the, the fanaticism was baked in from the beginning. It was part of what was supposed to be the image of a fan. Like, it, it was negative, when it started, it was not a good thing to be a fan and it isn't now either. So it really hasn't changed in that regard, except of punching out. But what you've seen is in the last 10, 15 years, it's gotten particularly virulent and particularly toxic because of the ways in which social media and the internet make it possible to act out that identification with the things that you consume and on the receiving end of that acting out, which I use that term because it's something a child does, and a lot of fans act in very infantile ways when their products are questioned, their their treats, on the receiving end of that are very often women, are very often people of color, are very often workers in general. Typically speaking, the people who get blasted by fans are the people who have the least control over the thing that they're angry about. And very often people who have every reason to be scared of a mob of angry, usually white, often male, and very often uh, well-off people beating a path to their door uh, and, and doxing them or mistreating them or sending them death threats or whatever online for having the temerity to like, I don't know, suggest a, a character's cleavage shouldn't be on full display in a video game or whatever. Yeah, it, it is the toxic elements of fandom that uh, really have come into light in the past few years. Because as you said, Noah, social media has really empowered fans in many ways. And in some ways that has been good. Like it's cool that people get to interact with their celebrities and you know higher ups and like 
I don't want this to sound like a tired screed against social media as, you know, the downfall of humanity, because I do think that a lot of good has come from that and that it's overly simplistic to just write it all off as a waste and, you know, the cause of everything that's wrong. But it is through newer mediums that fandom has achieved a power that I don't think it had in the past and a power that, frankly, fans have wielded quite poorly. This comes up a lot in the video game industry, where capital G gamers have wielded their muscle largely to like harass companies that are delaying their games, harassing specifically the developers who are like need the extra time to make the game a finished product before it is released to the public. You know, to give one example here. Requisite joke at this point, 72-point air quotes around the word muscle. Headline from June 4th, 2021. God of War dev harassed with abusive messages after Ragnarok delay. God of War Ragnarok is the newest game in that series. And at that time had just announced that its release date would be a few months after the previously announced release date. And sending fans into a tizzy and sending a few of them towards, you know, sending hateful messages to the people responsible. Only, only gamers could make delaying the end of the world into something to be angry about. Yeah. And that that's just one article, but you know, when the new star Wars started coming out and John Boyega was cast as a, a stormtrooper, like people lost their minds about it, about any of that. And, and anybody who gives five seconds of thought to this problem can think of a time when fans lost their minds, their collective mind, about some weird thing. Like the New Horizons or whatever that game was, where the fans were upset that the girl on the cover of the game had freckles or something like that and wasn't like a made-up babe. Like, it's it's insane the level to which people obsess about weird details and and get it into their mind that this ip they have ownership in it they they do believe that and that people making this owe them the final say on any product that comes out yeah noah you specified that in a lot of these cases and probably most of these cases, the fans in question are, you know, overwhelmingly white and male. I think there's something to the idea of like specifically male identity being wrapped up in fandom. I I know for my teenage years, my personality didn't extend much beyond the sports teams that I rooted for. You know, that is how I identified as a person. And anecdotally on Twitter, you can see any number of people who have as their bio just a list of the sports teams they root for. This is their identity. This is how they view themselves as a person. And and that's not to say that women can't be fans of things. No, it, I, I think that there's a definitely like a gender divide between respected fandoms, if, if that helps at all. Like uh, men can be fans of, Star Wars and Star Trek and 
sports and whatever. And that, that honestly flies for anybody. But the second a woman is a fan of a sports team or a, a Star Trek or, or anything in that realm, like that is automatically questioned about, oh, you're not a real fan. Oh, you're a fan of this. Please name like 10 different things about this. Or you are, can be a fan of K-pop or Taylor Swift or something that is considered less. Like if you're a K-pop fan, you are not right. Like there's, that's, that's okay. That's very cute. But like, you're a weirdo. So there is very much so gendered stuff in fandom. And wrapped up into that, so you've got the gatekeeping. Oh, you're a fan of Star Trek. Name your five favorite Federation starships that start with the letter E. But then you've also got, on the other side of things, the the gender bias where you're, when you're talking about Taylor Swift fans or K-pop fans, you're allowed to talk to about them as being insane. You're allowed to talk about them as being this murderous mob that will come into your house and kill you if you say anything bad. Unlike, you know, the male-dominated fandoms that actually do do that constantly and you're not really allowed to talk about them that way. Like, there's a lot of emphasis on, okay, but why are these people, like, what is the ethics in video game journalism that these people are actually concerned with? Newsflash, there wasn't one. They never were. That was never the point. So, the 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 divide in which fandoms are respected allows for different treatment of the people involved in those communities depending on that gender bias as well in particular with uh sports i wanted to mention that so this this kind of feeds back into something that we have been talking about a lot lately which is the fact that fans you know like once upon a time if you were a sports fan you wanted to be Ken Griffey Jr. You wanted to be Michael Jordan. You wanted to be, you know, like you wanted to be the athlete. You wanted to be the hero of the game. And now a lot of fans, a lot of sports fans, even fans that even fans that think of themselves as pro players or pro union or whatever, I think because they've internalized the message that they're never going to be a pro athlete, they want to be the general manager of a team, the owner of a team. Like, who the hell wants to be Arte Moreno? Who, why, why is it anybody's dream to be Alex Anthopoulos? Like, I, I get that we all, I get that we all watch Moneyball and we all enjoyed it and fine. How can you not be romantic about baseball? But the point of that was supposed to be that there was romance behind all of the spreadsheets. There was a story to tell beyond the numbers. And also the Oakland A's have been using that to justify what they've been doing to their, the ownership there has been using that to justify what they've been doing to their team. They are, I think, uniquely the only baseball team currently not insisting to their fans that actually you're in control and you own part of the team by being a fan because they don't want fans to have any feeling of control there. For those of you who don't know, they're trying to move to Las Vegas, and so they're trying to like tank attendance and tank the stadium so that fans won't show up. And fans have been very good fans. They've been telling ownership to sell the team so that it can stay in Oakland and reward their loyalty as fans. Like they've actually been using that for good a little bit. I I think it's worth raising the question at this point of why are we discussing this here on Punching Out? This is a show about labor. Is there more here than just 
a few angry tweets directed at video game developers, which noxious in its own right, but what's the labor angle here to our case against fandom? Why are we specifically focusing on this subject? And I, I think in my, my view, it's that fans, because they not only consume, but identify with that consumption, they are ready to be weaponized by executives, by team owners, by whoever's directing the like grand vision of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Kevin Feige, we've talked about him before. Okay, yes, you're right. He is the actual Thanos of, of the real world. You know, those people recognize that in their hands they have a loyal following. They have a fanatical following. And that following can be steered in certain directions. If they're, The example that comes to mind is like Taika Waititi throwing his CGI designers under the bus because people recognize that hmm, this Marvel movie, was it one of the Black Panther movies? The Thor Love and Thunder. Okay. You know, just didn't look up to the Marvel standard that they came to expect. You know, it's that aspect of fandom that is really what concerns us here on Punching Out. It's the way in which they become an opposing force to workers, the people who actually put on the product. You know, in the sports context, it is, as you said, fans who view themselves as GMs who, you know, will get on athletes for not taking a lesser salary to stay at their current team because in the grand narrative of it all, that represents disloyalty and, you know, is shameful. When, of course, athletes, as we discuss on Punching Out, are workers too and you know, deserve to be paid what they are worth. It's also it's also a wild move to accuse athletes of disloyalty for seeking a higher paycheck when literally the entire dominant culture of the United States is secured that bag. That is literally the only important value. Like we've talked before on Punching Out about how people would justify any career choice. They will find a way to sleep well no matter what they do. But when it comes to somebody that has a part of that identity, that wears the uniform that you put in your Twitter bio or whatever it is, then suddenly that's not okay anymore. They're not allowed to have self-worth and to care more about, you know, the the wealth that they're going to leave behind for their family. Like, I've talked before on this show about how I think we overblow the whole every athlete should be paid, like, all the money in the world thing. Uh, which I think is the remnants of of everybody holding them up as as this is who I want to be. But in a fight between them and general managers and team owners, like, yeah, I'm absolutely on their side. The, The real problem I have with the way in which we talk about pro athletes is that they get paid enough to then become part of that class. And because they were essentially jocks, we continue to think of them as like nice little people that are fun to be around because they do cool things. And then we don't recognize that they're like becoming part of the political class and the social class that controls everything, which is why I think this is so much more apparent with things like video games, with things like music, with things uh, like 
whenever artists have to, you know, cancel a tour or something like that, or, or cancel dates for whatever reason, sometimes, you know, it's very like, I think, what's his name? Eric church canceled a bunch of dates. Cause he wanted to go see his team in March madness. Uh, that was a thing last year that a lot of fans got pissed at him for. And that's kind of silly, but also like it wasn't, but you've also had artists have to cancel dates for things like, you know, losing their voice or, developing social anxiety or having a baby. Like there are things that happen that require you to change these things around. And the discourse is always like you start from the point of view that you're allowed to be angry about this. And then you can say, but, but they have a reason for this. So I'm forgiving them. They don't need your, they shouldn't need your forgiveness. They didn't commit a sin. They just, you know, life happens. And I think it's partly a reflection of on how abusive work is for all of us that we want the fantasy of being able to boss around these people who are more famous than us because our lives all suck. So why should theirs be so much better? They already get to have, you know, Wikipedia pages and they get to have money sometimes and they get to, you know, do amazing things and travel the world and whatnot. So Damn it, I'm gonna get my one thing in here. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to tell them what's for. I'm going to tweet at the official Mets account about the player <laughs> taking paternity leave. <laughs> I, I do think there's an irony in the fact that your first example there of musicians canceling concerts was of an artist choosing to follow his own fandom of like just becoming a UNC super fan and you know, going to that game against Duke, which, to be fair, totally reasonable decision. You know, who could blame him? But I, I think this is a, as good a place as any to take a break. And when we come back, we'll explore more aspects of fandom. Who knows what we'll find. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Leo. Hey, guys. We spent the first segment so far of today's show talking about fandom and why in recent years it seems to have become particularly uh, toxic and why it deserves a little pushing back against perhaps even a case against. And in this segment, we're going to keep doing that with, you know, no real uh, thematic uh, coherence here. We're just going to keep doing more of that. No, I think you had, the brightest idea for how we should start this. <laughs> well, there's a first. Here's the, my thought here. We spent the first segment sort of talking about, again, the symptoms. We we talked about the specific ways in which this has manifested itself. But I think the important part, the realization here, is that this, yes, fandom is a useful concept for corporations in the 21st century. It is a hammer that they can use against their own workers for 
basically anything they want. This is something that we've already talked about in relation to, for example, shareholders. So we talked about how when No Evil Foods, the lefty aesthetic vegan food thing factory in the Carolinas, when they tried to unionize, the owner held this meeting where he said, well, you can unionize if you want to, but the shareholders don't want it. So it, it's not it's not me that doesn't want to do this. It's not the union of busting lawyers that are right there. It's the shareholders don't want it. And much the same way every corporation sort of uses fans of this, of their product or, or the people who have power. They try to find the group of people who are unaccountable and who have all the power in the relationship. And shareholders is one thing because we've all accepted that, you know, rich people need to control everything. But what's interesting is corporations using fans, people who are not in the room when these decisions are being made, people who don't own shares in any of these companies, like they don't actually have any formal power over the decisions that are going to get made, but they are weaponized, the threat of them mobbing people or doxing or threatening people or simply not liking the product is used to tell workers to shut up and dribble or write scripts or surrender your job to AI or whatever it is. Yeah. I think when you put it like that, then fans are almost an extension of the customer is always right philosophy. Fans are, what are fans if not customers with rabies? You know, they are. (laughs) You know, they are people who, you know, not just buy the product, but see themselves in the product. Oh, that's a t-shirt. You know, if, as we've talked about on Punching Out, customers are the worst and, you know, should not be fed like trolls. They just do not engage, do not feed. Then fans are, like, even more powerful because, uh, as Lou, you talked about, they are collective. They are a group. They are... They have the power of numbers. They're not yeah. just some woman having a really bad day who wants to talk to the manager. They are several thousand Why people woman, Ryan? having bad days. But it, And it's everything that you want out of a union, but for evil. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, altogether, the collective is very strong and has a lot of power. And that's everything you want out of a union, and that's why you should unionize. But when it's a fandom, it's not often used for good. Yeah, because a union exists for you to stand up against the boss. It's for you as workers to collectivize against somebody that has more power than you. When you unionize as fans, who are you standing up against? The poor underpaid, you know, like animator who is working 100-hour weeks of crunch time because their bosses won't hire enough people? Like, are you really sticking it to the writer who's fighting to avoid, who's currently on strike, so that their job doesn't get replaced by a large language model of applied statistics that can't even tell a 
like more than 25 jokes, there's there's already a power imbalance there that you're just deepening. But I that does remind me that gamers did try to unionize once very recently. <laughs> that was hilarious. You bring up AI, and I, I think it's worth um, digging deeper into that. Totally tangential. Have you seen the thing where, like, if you ask ChatGPT how many times the letter E is in ketchup, it just has no way of answering. It just completely spills its guts and tells you the answer is four. Like, like we saw this. The lawyer who made who who put together that brief when they asked ChatGPT, "Do these decisions exist?" It's like, yeah, you can look it up on LexisNexis. No, you can't. It, it's hallucinating. Or when it, you ask it, I found this out today, when you ask it to tell you a joke in a different language, it tells you jokes in English that rely on wordplay in English. And then if you ask it in Spanish or German or whatever to explain the joke, it doesn't realize that, for example, piar in, in Spanish is not Twitter in English. So the joke doesn't work. Gripes with the usefulness of AI aside, you know, there have been threats and attempts to use AI to replace very real workers. And that's something we've talked about in recent episodes. Something that's really um, struck me as kind of horrifying is the suggestion that like dead actors might be made eternal through the use of AI, basically. They might train an AI to talk with just the intonation of this actor or this voice actor so that, you know, fans don't have to live without that actor yeah. playing that role in X number of remakes in the decades to come. And, you know, if you think about that for two seconds, that sounds cool. Yeah, sure. I want... Mark Hamill to always be Luke Skywalker? Why not? And then if you think about it for another two seconds, you realize, well, what about the next generation of actors? Are we just going to have the same actors being remunerated for the same roles in perpetuity for the rest of our lives? Are we going to see new ideas that weren't spawned before 2022 ever again? No, we're not. And it's not just like dead actors and, and, you know, people who cannot contribute anymore. Uh, Disney now owns the voice in perpetuity to James Earl Jones. Fun fact. Uh, when he finally retired, they wrote a deal where he, they get his voice forever. So he will always be the voice of Darth Vader, um, which yes, it's very iconic, but it's also really weird that if you're signing up to anything now, like, it's very likely that you will, and studios are actively trying to do this, and this is one of the reasons why the the guild very likely will strike. I think it was, what, 97% uh, approved strike uh, when they voted last weekend. Because of stuff like this, that the same thing that the Writers Guild is uh, going to strike about, the technology and the fandom that, that cannot tolerate somebody new in a role or even just a new role uh, of of that like yeah sort of to this point i i remember like after the 
great, uh, you know, Avengers um, first saga ended in terms of movies. They shortly after that, they released a video game of the Avengers. And one of the problems that fans had initially with it was that the characters in the game, though they are Captain America and Iron Man, don't share the likeness of the movie versions of those characters. You know, people were upset that Iron Man in this game didn't look like Robert Downey Jr. And, you know, there are obvious reasons for that. You have to pay for Robert Downey Jr.'s likeness. But it was an example of, hmm, here is a group that doesn't seem to be getting it. That, that I think, is the key. This is something, uh, Lou, I'm going to paraphrase you here. But you said off air that at best, right, fans are being used by corporations as, as a hammer against their workers. But at worst, and quite often, they are active participants in the degradation of workers, in, in the ways that they are treated and threatened with replacement and, and all this stuff. And it's because the reward for making all of these things your identity, the reward for like making your username on Instagram a pun on your favorite character from, I don't know, any Disney movie now, your reward for that is it's being told that you own part of this, that you're you're part of the community, that you matter, that you're the most important person in the world, that we do this all for you. And why wouldn't you sort of surrender to that? Like, I think most people, when they receive that treatment, it is so rare and always so insincerely given, but it's it's so rare to be told by anything in the current world that you matter, right? Most of the existence that we lead tells you explicitly you are a cog meant to be replaced the moment you rust or the moment you are incapable of doing your job. So an, a newer thing will come along and take your place, even if that's not possible, even if you're literally like... I don't know. Well, the thing is, nobody who's like engaging in these things is picking strawberries for a living. But the result of all of this is it's one of the few places where you get treated like that. And I think it, it really indulges that need to be allowed to dump on someone else for a change. And people really like absorb that. It becomes their safety valve for all of their pent up emotions about everything else that's going on in their lives. And this is not, this is, I guess, to empathize with them, but not really sympathize with them because you're supposed to be better than that. You're a grown person. And a lot of these people are physically, at least supposed to be grown people. Shouldn't act like that. Shouldn't be uh, firing strays at, you know, random band that they like, or a movie that didn't perform up to their exacting standards because they're angry at how the rest of the world is going. But that is what is encouraged as their reaction, because it keeps everybody on their toes and it keeps the people who do all the work really scared. I, I think another thing that ties into this fandom is like the franchisization of everything, the way that, you know, every movie is a sequel or a prequel or you know, has the subtitle Origins because it's a reboot of a previously existing movie. And 
So when you become a fan of something, when you choose to identify with, you know, one of the 10 most popular movies of the year, you can almost rest assured that you will never have to challenge that identity anymore. Like there's going to keep making Iron Man stuff. They're going to keep, you know, churning that out in perpetuity. And, and that's in a way that wasn't always the case. Like, you know, I think about something like back to the future, which, you know, did have multiple sequels and I think a TV show, but like, if you chose to wholly identify as a back to the future fan in 1986, you've had to develop other interests in the year since. And I think like for society that's healthier, it is good to be made to branch out from the stuff you've already consumed. It is good to be, you know, forced in this way to find new stuff, to explore new things because that's how you develop taste and frankly develop as a person because while there are certainly dangers that we've discussed to identifying with media, you know, there is also stuff to be gained from engaging with it. But now that like fans are, you know, being told to expect, you know, these are the next 10 years of the Marvel cinematic universe it's a self-fulfilling cycle where fans demand more of the universe and the universe is only too happy to provide because, Hey, they don't have to come up with new ideas. They don't have to pay someone else for a new IP. Yeah. That's exactly my biggest beef with fandom right now is that it has led to this multiverse phenomenon where you know, back in the day when Disney didn't own everything and Sony owned one thing and Marvel had another thing and Disney was another thing, like there had to be separation and you could have this story and it could, and it was separate from the other. And now everything is melded into the multiverse thing where nothing ever challenges or changes. It's always a comfort. It's, it's, there is an absurd amount of time spent in new movies and shows that is just like hey look you know recognize this actor from uh this other show that you saw then and he's playing the exact same character like there is no change and no growth there it is completely flat in character development in story in attitude and it's not just marvel <laughs> dc is doing it too and and every IP to some degree has to is turning into this because fans are comforted by it, or, or at least that's that seems to be the the attitude that's coming out of it. Is that it's like this is their baby blanket that you know if you like the Tobey Maguire Spider Man but never didn't really see the the Garfield ones or whoever he was like you can watch the new Spider-Man and just get a big old warm hug because it's the same. It is nostalgia on overdrive that is driving this phenomenon and fans are at the center of it. I, I do think that while fans are a useful, you know, we've talked about they're very useful to companies to have this. Um, what was the term you used Noah? 
in the first segment, I think, of fans being unanswerable. Oh, unaccountable. Unaccountable, yes. They have demands. We just have to follow them. It's also worth noting that there are, like, financial pressures behind the fact that every movie has to be a franchise now or a spinoff or a sequel. Like, for the amount of money that movies currently cost, studios are not going to shell out that cash on an unproven product. They are happily going to rely on something that has a proven audience, something that has fans, something that has, you know, we've done this before, we can do this again, and we don't have to take the risk of selling something new to people who don't already identify with it. Because yeah. when you do that, you might not succeed. Mm -hmm. And we've talked before about how none of these people are, you know, they all portray themselves as these visionaries and risk takers and innovators, but that's dead. I mean, to be fair, the innovation we're getting instead is meta and Theranos. So when, when that's the new ideas in the room, you can kind of see why maybe some people say, no, you know what? I'm going to play this ultra safe. I'm never going to do anything out of the box because then I'm going to be that. And it's like, I'm pretty sure there's a space in the continuum somewhere between fake machine that doesn't do a damn thing to analyze your blood and just releasing the same movie over and over again for 15 years. The thing where I think Lou is absolutely right, though, is that Frankly, at this point, you could put human excrement in a Spider-Man costume on screen for literally two hours, like you're making an extremely avant-garde movie, and it would still make money hand over fist because a lot of fans are abject morons uh, and would try to sell that as somehow a triumph for the MCU. So the fact that they're leaning into the multiverse thing specifically is about trying to make them happy. Lou, I know you've said this before about things like, you know, beer that tastes like toaster strudel or cereal and milk bars and things like that, that we've had for a very long time the thin end of an infantilization wedge. And people love to say this about things in education or things in healthcare or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that the infantilization has been, as, as a cultural phenomenon, has been almost complete. Like, people are constantly encouraged to stay in this mindset of being total kids, of just getting, you know, like, think of every debate you've ever seen about the young adult genre and how it's fine not just for, you know, replacing everything in an English curriculum, but also for adults to be reading into their 30s and 40s, because God forbid they ever have to read anything more complex than that, which is not to say that there isn't complexity in young adult books, but it's frankly not going to be the same most teenagers are not going to seek out an ada palmer novel just you know randomly but they should and it would enrich their lives and and it would frankly if it did prove a challenge that would be a good challenge for it to prove but there is this consistent need for a lot of people to not push themselves in this regard a lot of it is the failure of the systems around us, the failure of education, the failure of leisure. We don't have time. We don't have energy. We are working all the time for less money relative to, you know, how we used to. 
and with everything being more expensive, with existence being more precarious, and with a dying planet, a, a very quickly dying planet. And there is no one at the control of any of the levers of power that gives a damn about any of this. They want to accelerate all of that. So it is very understanding that people want to retreat into this cocoon. But here's the thing. When you're a kid, you're also powerless to affect your circumstances in a lot of ways, legally and politically speaking. So people are also giving up any chance they have to change those things by retreating into that nostalgia. They are on purpose making themselves not responsible for doing anything about all of those problems. And it's an understandable impulse, and it's one that we all get to indulge now and again. Totally get it. Self-care is a thing. But at some point, you do need to kind of like acknowledge your adulthood and move beyond that. And yeah, it's just, it, it's so disturbing because, you know, we're told as, as educators, what is that? That's like 46 minutes. We're told as educators that our job isn't even to like teach anything anymore. It's to help kids grow. It's to make them the people that they were meant to be. There's no growth anymore. They, they're, they don't want to. Their parents don't want them to. Administrators don't want them to. Counselors don't want them to. At least not where I work with a clientele that, I hate to use that term, but with with the, the student population that I have, that's not in the cards. They, they mature essentially because their brain does, but they don't push themselves as people. I can't tell you how many students I've had that at the end of their four or five years with me, are exactly where they were when they started in my classroom emotionally. And in some cases, that's me reading into them. But in some cases, it's 100% true. They are still 13 years old when they graduate from high school. And then they turn into the kind of fan that, you know, tells like women on the internet to kill themselves or, uh, you know, questions why nobody wants to date them uh, when they're so nice or whatever. I think we'll end that segment there. And when we come back in our third segment, we'll try and talk about, you know, what a good version of fandom could be. Is such a thing possible? Do good fans exist? We'll Other than punching out fans. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Fans! And Lou. Hey guys. Uh, Before we start our third segment today, I want to Take a moment to note that real Punching Out fans can access director's commentary and the extended cut of today's episode and all our other episodes at SoundCloud.com. No, we've been talking about fandom and how corporations like to use it um, as a weapon against things they don't like, which primarily includes their workers. I I left off the last segment with the idea that we might talk about, you know, a good fandom, a 
possible good use of fandom. And I, I think there has to be a, Noah, this is usually your territory, but I I think at some point people just have to be smarter about things. People have to be better, like smarter consumers and more critical about the stuff they consume. And there's not like an easy fix to the problem of like everybody lining up to buy the Hogwarts video game. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right, Ryan. Like, to some degree, it's just that fans need to be better. Like, to be the opposite of this episode, because that's what I love to do, uh, the, like, fandom does have some perks for a lot of people. Like, if you're not a sporty person, fandom is often how you connect with people outside of work, since work is where we spend the majority of our time. Fandom allows you some kind of... like space to connect with humans outside of work. And so there, there is a point and there is a space in which fandom can do a lot of good, but the thoughtlessness that goes into it right now has led to more bad than good. I would argue. Yeah. I think the starting point for a lot of where do we go from here is the realization that things could be better and that one of the ways in which we make them better is by being better people. I'm I'm happy to be the, the moralist again on this one. But so I'll give a recent example. It's baseball season, so we're going to find a way to shoehorn it in again. But for those of you who are unaware, a number of players, mostly pitchers, because I think pitchers have a particular case of red ass where they feel like they have to deal with everything themselves and they can't let their teammates do any of it, decided to mouth off about Pride Night, specifically the, the fact that the Dodgers were inviting a drag troupe the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, that worked with AIDS patients in the 80s and so on and took care of people. And uh, they they dress up and kind of they use Catholic terminology and, and they kind of make fun of the church for, you know, not caring about the, the people that they were uh, working with, even though that's the people that Jesus would have worked with had he been around then. But enough about that. A number of these players have mouthed off about it, and in particular Blue Jays pitcher Anthony Bass ended up getting uh, cut from the team as, as partly as a response to him proving completely unable to apologize in, in any way that made sense, and partly because he sucked this year, so he was not a critical part of the team. And the number of people that I've seen, the number of Blue Jays fans that I have seen say, the way the team has handled this situation, I'm done. I'm out. If this is how you're going to treat something that is this personally important to me, I'll flush 40 years of fandom down the toilet. I would rather do that than have to put up with this organization mismanaging this kind of thing. And now I have never had 40 years of loyalty to anything. I'm not 40 years old. That is literally impossible for me. But I've never even had, I would estimate, 30, 20 years of loyalty to anything, partly because when something disappoints me like that, 
I'm pretty quick about cutting it out. I've done that to family members before. I don't see why I wouldn't do that to like a sports team or, you know, a, a movie director or whatever. But I empathize with that desire to want to stay loyal to something that you've cared deeply about and that has disappointed you so much that you feel the need to leave. But I think that's a reflex we need to cultivate. I think a lot of people, because of the community, because of the collective spirit that comes out of these things, they don't want to leave any of this stuff behind. There are a lot of very good-minded people who, when the Writers Guild strike first happened, they asked, you know, what can we do? And it was all in the measure of a boycott. What can we stop doing to help? Because the sacrifice, number one, would be collective, and that would feel good. Being in community, like, oh, I'm not watching Netflix to support the writer's strike. You know, we're all not doing that. We're changing our profile pictures, and we're saying, here's the things we're not doing, that kind of thing. None of them seem to ever ask, like, can we get you guys anything? Can we send you some bottled water? Can we get you some pizza? Can we show up and help? Some groups did it notably. You know, like uh, DSA chapters and people like that did show up and Teamsters and, and so on. But people as individuals were too atomized to imagine this idea of why don't we stand up for the people who make the stuff that we enjoy? And not by not doing something, but by actually showing up for them. And I think that has to be the first step, the realization that, I mean, it, it, it's very basic. It's solidarity, but it has to be solidarity as an active practice, as opposed to something that you stop doing as a form of, as a Lent, as a secular Lent, as something that you give up so that you can feel like you're doing your part. When you talked about uh, the stuff that's been going on surrounding Pride Nights in Major League Baseball, I'm reminded of, you know, what goes on in fan groups in Major League Soccer, which is, as I always preface, a thing that I care about that nobody else really has to. Where, like, due to various forces, soccer fans in the United States have a much more progressive bent than probably most other sports fandoms. And so a few years ago, there were, like, protests by fans in Portland and Seattle because their respective teams had like confiscated anti-fascism banners from fans at games. You know, these are groups who have been outspoken, who happily wave the pride flag, who bring their politics to their fandom and actively resist efforts to quiet that out because God knows that MLS as a corporation would like to sand off the untidy edges of what it means to stand in solidarity with groups and X, Y, and Z fans don't have to be the villains in all of this. They can be a force for good because they have a certain collective power. Unfortunately, a lot of culture tends to, reward and encourage people to use their powers as consumers in the most noxious ways imaginable to engage in weird boycotts and harassment of companies for causes big and small to, you know, go on tirades at your local target, you know, any number of things in which, you know, not good, but there is 
a different world in which like people recognize that as people who give corporations their money, they do have some power and that can be used for good. It doesn't have to be wielded exclusively for bad. I think that everything we've said here, it makes it like, I understand why it's hard to, to break away from toxic fandoms and a lot of people can distance themselves from bad behavior and and bad actors like people who watch star trek and think that it's only gotten political recently sorry that's very much so not the case and and people will see and read into ips the way that what what they want to see already and one of the impressive things that Disney and Marvel has done is they allow everybody and any kind of political bent. It is so neutral and so unremarkable that you can be right wing and appreciate Marvel and Disney, or you can be left wing and appreciate Marvel and Disney to some degree because it is so neutral and it is so without value. And I think that, in order to be better fans, we need to actually support values actively. Like Ryan was saying with, with soccer fandom and that it tends to be more progressive and it is actively advocating for certain political views. Like the, the media that we consume can be political and we need to understand that it is political to some degree and having a neutral stance on something is not acceptable in the roads that we're going politically. Uh, and I think fans need to take a side and they need to argue actively. Like it's there, there are good things and there are morally things that we need to support, not just through uh, saying that we support them, but honestly support them. I think on that note, we have uh, come up upon the end of our hour here for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.